strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord.
Thank you for your singing. Is this on now? There we go. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service this morning, Sunday, the 19th of March. Spring's coming. It's coming. You can start to feel that warmth in the sun a little bit. So it's winter. So it's winter. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Corey. Spring's coming first. <laughs> Anyway, it's just great to have you all here this morning. Uh, if you'd like to open your bulletins, and we'll read the call to worship together. It's from Psalm 140. Let's just read together. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Listen, O Lord, to my cries for mercy. Surely righteous people are praising your name. The godly will live in your presence. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that we have a, a warm building to come to and that we can gather as a congregation and a church family here this morning to uh, just to have fellowship, Lord, and most of all, just to celebrate and praise you. We just thank you for the, your rich blessings to us, Lord, and the goodness you have for us. And so we just, uh, yeah, just pray that you will uh, help us to be mindful this morning here to hear the message that, uh, that Pastor Glenn has laid, will be laying on us this morning, Lord. So again, we just thank you so much, and we just want to turn this service over to you this morning, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Joan, I think, is doing the scripture reading. This is from Acts 24, 1 to 27. The trial before Felix. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertius, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertius presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in the nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make your defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. 
However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they called a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law, and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my God gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremoniously clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysilas, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusella, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about the faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcupius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Thanks, John, for reading that passage. And let's just ask God to guide our thoughts as we go through this. Lord God, we just pray that you would help us to see what you're saying to us here this morning. And uh, help me, Lord, to speak it as it needs to be spoken. Help us all, Lord, to just put everything out of our minds that are floating around of things that happened last week or things that we're going to be facing this week and and help us Lord just to for an hour or so just focus on you and what you're saying to us and and as we listen to you it would be an act of worship on our part and as we open ourselves to you that you could feed us and Lord just whatever each one of us individually need here this morning I pray that you would take this and use it to that end we pray in your name amen Well, it seems dark up here this morning. We changed all the bulbs at the church <laughs> Friday night, so it's brighter for you guys, but I, it seems darker for me, so maybe we need to adjust some lights in place. But I hope I can read my notes. 
I just get more high maintenance all the time, aren't I? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a couple of ladies were uh, sitting on a patio talking about their grandchildren. And one was saying to the other that she would really like it if her grandchildren would come to visit her. And she said, it seems like all I do is sit here and wait and wait for them to come to see me, and they never do. I send them gifts, I send them greeting cards, I even send them checks in the mail, and I wait and I wait and they come to see me. Rarely do they come to see me. So I just sit here and wait. And the other old lady replied, oh, I send checks to my grandchildren too, and they, they come visit me all the time. And the first replied, oh, you are so fortunate to have such grateful grandchildren so much more grateful than my grandchildren are. And the first, uh, or the second one said, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I doubt if my grandchildren are any more grateful than yours. And then the first asked, so what do you do that's different? Are your checks bigger than mine? Or? <laughs> and the second chuckled and said, no, I just don't sign mine. <laughs> Waiting. And that's one of the struggles of life. We want to move in a certain direction. We want to get a project done. Maybe there's a health concern that needs to be addressed. And at every step, we seem to have to wait. Anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time knows that there are times when we are put in a position of waiting. Something happens... Our life takes an unexpected turn. We don't know what our next move needs to be or what the next step is. We pray, we ask God to do something, to open a door, to provide some direction, and it seems like we get nothing. And so we wait. Waiting on God, in many times, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing, especially when you're impatient, like me. <laughs> it's not easy to sit and wait. What do you do with those times where you're forced to wait? How do you handle them? In our series through the book of Acts, we hit chapter 24 to today, which Joan just read for us. Uh, but just to get us all up to speed on where we are in the story, uh, the Apostle Paul was arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem, right in the temple courtyard, they were starting to beat Paul with the intent to kill him. He was rescued by the Roman soldiers who were stationed there under the command of Claudius Lysias. There was an attempt to have a hearing before the Jewish high council called the Sanhedrin. But again, a riot was on the verge of breaking out because of a statement that Paul made that he was on trial for the hope and the resurrection from the dead. That, as we saw last week, that split the Sanhedrin. They started fighting amongst themselves. Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. So an argument broke out and there was a, it was degenerating into a riot. So the Roman soldiers brought Paul back to the barracks. And a plot was made by a group of over 40 Jews to not eat anything until they put Paul to death. They concocted a scheme with the Jewish leaders. 
Yet scheme was that uh, the Jewish leaders would ask Paul be brought before them again, ask the Roman commander to do that. The next day, bring Paul again before them so they could lay, have, or have a further investigation. And this scheme was that while Paul was on the way, these 40 Jews would kill him from ambush. Well, the Roman commander heard about the plot through Paul's nephew, so under heavy armed guard, uh, he got Paul out of Jerusalem during the night and sent him to Caesarea. The Roman governor, Felix, was stationed there in Caesarea. And uh, so the commander wrote a letter to Felix to be delivered by his soldiers to, to Felix, explaining the situation and that he was sending Paul to be tried before him. They got to Caesarea, Felix read the letter, made the decision to have the trial for Paul when his accusers got there. And so that's where we pick up the story now in chapter 24. But before we do that, I think we need to back up even further and look at the big picture. And the big picture, we see that Paul, following his third missionary journey, had intended to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. That was what the Holy Spirit directed him to do. He was following that direction. <clears throat> now, he had been warned that bad things were going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. But Paul determined to go anyway because he was convinced that the Holy Spirit was directing him there. So he went and bad things happened to him, as we've been seeing, with his arrest and trials and beatings and all that. But again, during that night, after Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem, during that night, Jesus appeared to him and assured him that he would preach the gospel in Rome. So we need to keep that big picture in mind. Paul was on his way to Rome. That's where his... He's been directed, that's what, where his final destination was. That's where he's shooting for, to get to Rome. Now on the surface, it seems like this arrest and these trials are changing those plans. Because now Paul's a prisoner awaiting a trial. And getting to Rome now is going to be a bit delayed at best. And at worst, he may not ever get there. He may be killed before he even gets there, depending on the outcome of the trial. But, but Jesus had assured Paul that he would preach the gospel in Rome. And so as I said, we need to remember this overall plan of God. And these present circumstances, even though they seem to be contradictory. Now, let's get into chapter 24. Uh, again, we'll quickly go through the chapter. And uh, so we all see what's, what's going on here. And then we'll make the application. 24 verse 1 says that five days later, after Paul got to Caesarea, uh, his accusers came with the charges against him. The accusers were the high priest, Ananias, and some of the Jewish elders, and they brought with them a lawyer named Tertullus. Now, lawyers in the New Testament Jewish world were usually people who were experts at interpreting Jewish law. Uh, not necessarily the scriptures, <laughs> though that was included, but the, the law of the Jews, which were much more detailed and often to the point of contradictory in the scriptures. We've talked about that before. So likely Tertullus was a Jew with a Roman name. Many Jews at this time, because of their domin domination by, the room, by Rome, uh, they, many Jews had Roman names. So Tertullus started his accusation before Felix, first of all by buttering Felix up, verses 2 to 4. <laughs> I read that and I thought, oh my goodness. 
Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge us in every way, everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Jews did not have a good relationship with Felix. <laughs> they didn't like Felix very much because he didn't, they didn't like the way Felix treated them, the Jews. So what Tertullus is saying here is just a buttering up of Felix. Uh, there, he was, yeah. <laughs> One commentator put it, he used flattery to cover up a very weak case. <laughs> so he went on to tell us, he named three offenses which he was charging Paul with. First, he was a pest and a troublemaker, verse 5. He had proven to be that around the whole Roman world. He stirs up trouble wherever he goes. Second charge, he's a ringleader of a sect or a cult called the Nazarenes. That sect or cult is kind of a breakaway from Judaism was one of the religions that the Romans did approve. People were able to practice that religion with freedom. Not all religions were given that freedom, but Judaism was. So he's kind of underhandedly saying, like, if Paul's a ringleader of a sect that broke away from Judaism. So he's, whatever he's preaching has not been approved by Rome. It's kind of the implication behind that one. It made him sound like a rebel and perhaps even bordering on treason. And the third offense was that he tried to desecrate the temple. Now that third charge in reality was the charge that he was arrested for and the only charge that had any weight at all because under Jewish law, punishable by death was desecrating the temple. And it seems like the Romans went along with the Jews in enforcing that, that law. Uh, if you were desecrated the temple, yeah, that death penalty was carried out. But as we've seen in weeks past, that was a false charge based on false assumptions. Verses 6 through 8. Uh, some of you perhaps noticed that there's a difference in the different translations uh, in there, verses 6 through 8. Some of your Bibles have, uh, from the middle of verse 6 to the middle of verse 8, they have that in brackets. Uh, some don't have that section at all in the text. They've just deleted it or omitted it. Not deleted it, that's not the right word. But, And some of you have that section, uh, but there's a footnote, and then the, that section is not in the main text, but it's in small print at the bottom of your Bibles. Uh, and some translations have the whole thing without any brackets or anything. The issue is, uh, of the thousands of ancient manuscripts that the New Testament of the New Testament that is available to translators. Uh, some of these manuscripts have that, that section and some don't. Uh, generally speaking, the older manuscripts don't have it, while some of the newer ones, of the newer of those ancient manuscripts, they do have it. Uh, and overall, there's a slight majority, if you take all the manuscripts together, uh, a slight majority of them don't have that passage and a smaller number do have that passage. So there's a, that, that's why you have the different translations dealing with it in different ways. But it really makes no difference. It is just Tertullus repeating things that all we already know from chapter 23. He's just repeating that uh, with his own bias spin to it, of course. But it doesn't really change anything. Well, it doesn't change anything at all. At any rate, Tertullus tells Felix that he will be able to see the truth of these charges when he examines Paul himself. 
And all the Jews that were there with him, they all chimed in saying, yes, these charges are true. We know them. These are accurate. What Tertullus is saying is true and accurate. Felix then gave Paul an opportunity to speak and defend himself. And that's verse 10 and following. And so Paul said, I was in Jerusalem for 10 days, or 12 days during this time. He said he was never in any public discussion with anyone, nor did he cause a riot. None of those charges, Paul said, can be proven. He did admit to serving God according to the way, which his accusers are calling a sect or a cult. But he said, I do that, believing all of the law and the prophets, and that he has the same hope that every one of his Jewish accusers have themselves, that of the resurrection of the dead. And he went on to elaborate that actually he had been absent from Jerusalem for several years before his last visit of 12 days. Uh, he came to bring offerings and alms to his people. You remember from other pastors in the New Testament that Paul was collecting money for the poor of Jerusalem, uh, the poor Christ the Christians who were poverty. There was a famine going on. And uh, he had collected money from the Gentile churches for these, this Jewish church. So he came to Jerusalem to bring the offering and alms to his people. And then he said he was in the temple. He had gone through all the purification rites. He was in the temple. There was no crowd. There was no uproar. But, Paul says, there were some Jews from Asia there who falsely accused him. And Paul says, in effect, that they're the ones who originally accused him. It wasn't the Jews from Jerusalem that did. It was the Asian Jews. And they're the ones who should have been here to make any accusation if they had any. But they didn't show. And then Paul did admit to making a statement before the Sanhedrin that he was on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Well, when Paul finishes defense, Felix basically adjourned the case. It sounds like here that he knew a bit, a fair bit, about the way or Christianity, these early Christians and their beliefs. He knew a fair bit about that. And he just said, when Lysias comes down, I will decide the case. So he's waiting for that Roman commander, Lysias, uh, to come and give whatever information he had. And so then he gave orders for Paul to be kept in custody there at Caesarea. But Paul was given a fair amount of freedom there in his custody. His friends could come at will to minister to him. And I remember back from chapter 21 that there was a number of Christians there at Caesarea that Paul had met back then. But it seems like Felix was a bit interested and a bit intrigued by these Christians and their beliefs. Now remember, Felix was a pretty corrupt guy. In many different ways. He was money hungry. He would stoop quite a ways, quite, a far, quite far down to get money, legally or illegally. He was cruel. He was fraudulent. And, verse 24, we're introduced to his wife, Drusilla. Now, we're not told about, about, him, about Drusilla here, but if you look at secular history, you find some interesting stuff here. <laughs> Drusilla, she was a Jew. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, remember, was the king, what they called the king back in, in the Gospels from the birth of Jesus. During the time of Herod, the, the king of King Herod, it talks about that. That's Herod the Great. So Drusilla would have been a great, the great granddaughter, I guess, of Herod the Great. Uh, at the age of 14, Drusilla was given in marriage to King Azazus, who was king of Emesa. No, I don't know anything about Azazus or Emesa, but uh, 
she was given in marriage at the age of 14 to this king. And she was reportedly very unhappy in that marriage and was later seduced by Felix, this Felix we are talking about here, uh, who talked her into leaving King Azazus and marrying him. And she, well, she became his third wife. And she would have been 19 at the time when uh, Felix married Drusilla. And she was reportedly, this came out in all the research I could find, she was reportedly a very beautiful young woman. And uh, so she became Felix's third wife. At any rate, verse 24 and following, Felix and Drusilla sent for Paul. They apparently wanted to hear Paul talk about faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul told them, verse 25, and in the telling of them, he talked about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. And it says Felix became frightened. And I kind of chuckled. Yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> All this talk of righteousness and self-control and judgment, that Felix would have found that very convicting, considering the way he was living his life. And so Paul was dismissed, and Felix told him he would summon him again when he got around to it, basically. Then we're also told that he was kind of hoping to get a bribe from Paul to let him go. And so he met with Paul frequently, it says. And, and, and we get the impression that this kind of went on the whole time he was there, that Felix and Paul would get together. And it seems like Felix had the impression that Paul had access to some wealth. He had access to money. So he was hoping that he'd be able to get a bribe out of Paul. Uh, so that speaks to his fraudulent character, and that's why he kept Paul around. And this went on, verse 27 says, for two years. Two years. <laughs> Lycaeus never showed up. Likely Felix never sent for him. But Paul was, Felix kept Paul in custody, wanting to do the Jews a favor and hoping for this bribe for two years. And after two years were up, Felix was succeeded as governor of Judea by Portius Festus. And Paul was still there, a prisoner there in Caesarea. So that brings us to the end of the chapter. And for the application of this this morning, I want to focus there on verses 26 and 27. And what we are told there, that Paul was kept in custody in Caesarea for two years. For what? Why? He was supposed to be going to Rome. Remember? That's where Paul's going. He's going to Rome. That's where Jesus told him he was going to go preach the gospel in Rome. So why did God leave him there in Caesarea for two years? Two years of waiting. Two years of seemingly God not doing much at all. Let's look at it. As Christians, we need to know how to handle times of waiting in our lives. And we can learn how to handle these times by coming to an understanding of the principles about times of waiting that come out here in Acts chapter 24. So there's two principles I want to look at. And the first one is understand that God has a purpose in the waiting. God has a purpose in the waiting. God never does anything for no reason. There's always a purpose behind what he does or doesn't do. The 
problem is there are times when he doesn't tell us <laughs> what the purpose is. In fact, I think it's safe to say that he almost never tells us the reason, at least not ahead of time. There are times when years down the road we can look back and we can see, we can understand the reason. But there may be times when he never tells us the reason. I think of Job and the trials that God allowed Job to go through. He tried Job's faith to the core. And Job longed to know why God was allowing those trials in his life. And what always stands out to me when I think about Job or read the book of Job is that God never told him why. God, uh, Job went to his grave without knowing why. When we read the book of Job, we can see why. <laughs> but Job never got to see that. It's the same thing with times of waiting. We will likely not be told why it seems like we're on hold. And in a period of waiting. I don't see that God ever told Paul why he had to sit there in prison in Caesarea for two years. God had told him he's going to Rome. Jesus himself had appeared to Paul and assured him that he would preach the gospel in Rome. Paul had every intention after his Jerusalem visit to go straight to Rome. And that was completely in line with the direction the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. But now he's arrested on false charges. His trial is being delayed. <laughs> Sounds like our judicial system, doesn't it? <laughs> Trials are being delayed, delayed, delayed. Same thing here. He's stuck in prison in Caesarea for two years and he's not told why God is allowing that to happen. But we do know from the rest of Scripture that God never does anything for no reason. There's a purpose. And so there's a purpose in times of waiting. Even if we may never know what that purpose is. And God making his people wait is nothing new. Uh, you see that throughout the Bible. And often people get the impression that in Bible times the people of God were so close to God they could talk with him face to face and God did amazing things through, through them. And when they got in trouble they would just pray and God would miraculously bring them out. And If that's your impression when a Bible, of, of, of Bible times and how things went in the Bible then you haven't read your Bible with any kind of depth. The Bible is full of examples of people waiting for God and getting frustrated in the waiting. How long did Abraham and Sarah wait for their promised son? Anybody know the answer to that? This is a test now. How well do you know your Bibles? How long did Abraham and Sarah wait? <laughs> I got you all stumped. Come on, people. You know this. <laughs> 25 years, exactly. It was 25 years they waited and waited and waited. And God promised they would give a son. And they waited and they waited. And they got old. And they were getting past childbearing years. It was... And they waited some more. <laughs> 25 years. <laughs> How long did Hannah, the mother of Samuel, suffer the stigma of barrenness, praying and praying that, God, that she could have a child? 
How long did she wait before Samuel was born? Well, there we're not told exactly, but we, it, is, it was years. Another question. This one I want an answer to. <laughs> that lady we're told about in Mark chapter 5 and also in Luke chapter 8. That lady that managed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and be healed of her sickness. Remember, she had a very uniquely female illness, an issue of blood that wouldn't stop. How long was she fighting that? That ailment, spending all her money on doctors and not being healed before she managed to come through the crowd and touch the hem of Jesus' garment. How, many, how long was that? Anybody remember? Way to go, Larry. Twelve years that she waited. So those are just three quick examples. There are many examples like that in the scriptures. So being kind of on hold in a period of waiting is not new. It's not out of the ordinary. All our heroes that we read of in the Bible, they went through the same thing. I said likely we won't know the purpose of the waiting, and that's true. We likely won't know the specific purpose for the specific period of waiting, at least not till later. But God has told us the more general purpose that applies to all forms of trials and testing. And likely you know what that purpose is. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Let's turn there and read it. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Apostle James there writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials strengthen your faith. It causes us to grow in our Christian maturity. It causes us to grow strong in our Christian character. It produces in us endurance. Times of waiting will likely be a time of trial. <laughs> we struggle with waiting. We struggle with feeling like we're put on hold and not knowing why and not knowing where the end is or when the end is. It's a trial. We don't know what God is up to. We are frustrated with a seeming lack of action. It's a trial. And, there are, and here, there in James, we are told the purpose behind the times of trial to strengthen our faith and our Christian character and to produce in us endurance. It's a good exercise sometimes to go through the book of Psalms and to see how many times reference is made to waiting on God. Just one example of many psalms. Psalm 27 verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That's just one example of many throughout the book of Psalms. And then of course the verse about waiting that many of us know. I think Bonnie had that verse in mind when she picked the psalms this morning. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11. You know that verse by memory, some of you. Yet those who wait... For the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. 
They will walk and not faint. Who will fly and run and walk with endurance? Those who wait for the Lord. Now that verse does not tell us the specific purpose of the waiting, but it does tell us the result. Those who wait for the Lord, our faith will grow stronger, and as James says, we will grow in endurance. We will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not get tired. Walk and not faint. So we need to understand that God has a purpose in the waiting. If you're in a period of waiting right now, wondering what God is up to, having no idea what your next step should be, just waiting for God to by some means show you. And you're waiting and you don't know why. Understand that there's a purpose to the waiting. God has a purpose for you in the waiting. He may not tell you. He likely won't tell you. But that doesn't mean there isn't a reason. But you do know that this trial of waiting does have a purpose of helping you to grow in your faith to become strong as a Christian, to live the Christian life, and to build your endurance to live the Christian life in the long haul. We are never told why Paul sat there in prison for two years. We don't know what God's specific purpose in and for those two years. or two years pretty much of silence. As far as we can tell, Paul never knew either. But God had a reason. And it was a time of stretching and growth and endurance building. So understand that God has a purpose in the waiting. And then secondly, realize that there are ministry opportunities during periods of waiting. Realize there are ministry opportunities during those periods of waiting. So what did Paul do during those two years of prison in Caesarea? Jesus had called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus had directed him to go to Rome. So he could preach to the Gentiles there the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus had assured him he's going to do that. And he's now in prison in Caesarea, and we know it was for two years. But while Paul was there, he, he had no idea how long it was going to be. We know it was two years, but Paul sitting there in prison, he had no idea that it was going to be two years. He had no idea. He, there was no end in sight as far as he knew. He was just waiting for, for a trial and trial kept being put off. And we're not told very much at all about those two years. Really, we are told nothing except what's written there in verses 23 to 27. That's all we know. Pretty much two years of silence. But we are told some things in those verses. First, verse 23 says that his friends were given the freedom to come and see Paul and minister to him. And likely what that means was that they could take care of Paul's needs, bring him food and do his laundry and visit with him and all that kind of thing. That was probably what that means, minister to him. We know there was a group of Christians there in Caesarea. We saw that back in chapter 21, I think. And those are likely the friends spoken of here in verse 23. So Paul did have fairly easy contact with these Christians. They could come see him pretty much whenever they wanted. And from what we already know about Paul, Paul would have taken advantage of that contact to encourage those Christians in their faith, that was always Paul's practice. Not only to preach the gospel to those who needed to hear it, to bring people to faith in Jesus, but also to encourage those that 
those that did place their faith in Jesus. That was always important to Paul. We've seen throughout Paul's journeys, missionary journeys, that he included in those travels times to visit the churches he had started to encourage them in their faith as new Christians. So there's no reason to think that Paul wouldn't do the same thing here in Caesarea uh, during this time of imprisonment as those Christians came to minister to him that he would encourage them in their faith. So that was one thing that I'm sure Paul did. We're told something else in these verses. Verse 24. Felix and Drusilla sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 26. says Felix would often, over that two-year period, send for Paul and converse with him. Now, granted, Felix was hoping for a bribe, <laughs> but there must have been an interest in Felix about Jesus and faith in him and what this new Christianity stuff was all about. So what do you suppose they talked about during those times? And I think we can make a very accurate assumption. Paul wasn't one to waste an opportunity. We know that about him. And I'm sure Paul used those times to explain to Felix the gospel to urge him to place his faith in Jesus Meaning, to realize who Jesus was and is, to recognize his own sinfulness, to understand that Jesus is the only one who can forgive sins and give cleansing, to repent of his sin and ask Jesus to forgiveness and invite him into his heart to be his savior. I'm sure that Paul would have explained that all to Felix over that time, many times. Now, we have no indication that Felix ever did become a Christian. Uh, we know nothing about Felix after this either from the Bible or from secular history. Felix just kind of disappears after this. But we do know that Paul conversed with him often over a two-year period. So, maybe. <laughs> we, we just don't know. The point is, even though he was in prison for two years there in Caesarea, waiting the whole time for there to be a fair trial so he could be acquitted and get on to Rome, there were opportunities during this time for Paul to minister to others for Jesus. Yes, he was stuck there waiting, but he didn't just sit there and twiddle his thumbs for two years. There were opportunities for ministry, even there in prison, which he took advantage of. And friends, there will be for you as well. <laughs> even in those times when your life seems like it's on hold, you don't know what your next move or step or course of direction should be. You're just waiting for God to open something up or to give you some kind of direction. While you are waiting, friends, while you're waiting, there will be people that will move in and out of your life that you can minister to. There will be those that will be in your life or come into your life that need to hear about Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And you can tell them. They may respond, they may not, but you can tell them. There will be likely Christians in your life or that come into your life during those periods where it feels like you're waiting and you're on hold. There will be Christians that come into your life that you can encourage and maybe even you can teach. 
during those times of waiting, your life doesn't have to be on hold in that sense. There will be ministry opportunities for you that you can take advantage of while you're waiting for God to do something. So don't just sit there in your little cell and withdraw from life while you wait on the Lord. And, and miss those opportunities. Grab a hold of them and minister. Realize that there are ministry opportunities during periods of waiting. So therefore we see from this passage a couple of great principles on how to handle times of waiting. Number one, understand that God has a purpose in the waiting even though you don't see it and even though you may not ever see it. There is a purpose. And number two, realize there are ministry opportunities during periods of waiting. Yeah, I don't know where each of you are this morning. <clears throat> Maybe there are those here this morning who are just kind of waiting. Maybe life has thrown you a curve. You lost your job. Don't know what to do next. Nothing seems to be opening up for you. Waiting for God to do something. Praying, waiting. Maybe a health issue has come up. You're waiting for a test. Waiting to see a specialist. Waiting for a procedure that may be years down the road with the waiting list in our health care system. And you're just waiting. Could be any of a number of things. And it seems like you're just kind of stuck waiting. Don't know what the next move should be. Don't know what the next course of action should be. Through no cause of your own, you're in a position where you just have to wait. If that's you, I hope you can take encouragement from this. God has a purpose for the waiting. Most important being that your faith would grow, your Christian character would become stronger, and your endurance will increase. And in the meantime, there will be opportunities to minister to others for Jesus. So while you're waiting, people will come into your life that you can encourage and you can tell about Jesus. Don't miss those opportunities. Take advantage of them. Let's take our time of silence and just quieten all our hearts before God and just listen. Just listen. What is God saying to you, to me personally this morning? Amen. Music team, please.
singing.